0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: From Podcast Wine. Coming up in this episode of Target USA.
0: Uh, I truly believe that our greatest threat we face is our adversaries, mostly Russia, China, and a little bit Iran, inside our critical infrastructure.
1: Bill Avenina, the recently retired director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And he's going to say, if we're not careful, these adversaries could shut us down.
0: The ability for any given moment, uh, our adversary to shut off our power grids, our electrical grids, gas, natural oil, Um, or the ability to have cyber um, malfeasance in those areas, to me, is our greatest threat long-term.
1: A long-awaited, comprehensive, and enlightening interview with a man who saw the U.S. through some dicey counterintelligence times. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is is Target USA, Russia, could render a huge harm to this country, North Korea's secret missile, capable of reaching the whole of the United States, dangerous terrorist,
0: DC is repeatedly mentioned as someplace place they would like to seek an attack,
1: cyber criminals,
0: decryption successful,
1: America has a target on its back, and on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them and the impact on you this is target usa the national security podcast i'm jj green we've spoken to bill Evanina numerous times over the last decade and several times on the target usa podcast each time we spoke with him it was under the constraints and the watchful eyes of press officials but on this program, there was none of that. And we talked about a lot of things, including the threats that face the U.S., his time working under Donald Trump, and what the U.S. really has to be concerned about in the cyber world in the coming days, months, and years. Well, Mr. Evanina, thank you for uh, joining us and uh, agreeing to talk about this, but... Um back into the world that you just left, I wanna go back there to ask you a few questions. Um, first, I'd like to ask, how would you characterize your time as director of the National Counterintelligence and Cybersecurity Center in terms of threats and evolving threats, et cetera?
0: Well, I think JJ, we uh, we began with a vision back in 2014 uh, to be uh, have a boutique role in not only advising and informing uh, of the threats vulnerabilities and consequences inside the government, which includes the intelligence community and the executive branch, and the legislative branch, but as well as the private sector in trying to drive a formula and a framework for understanding that our nation state threat actors were now penetrating, stealing, and potentially victimizing private sector entities. So we built that uh, with the auspices that we would serve a role in partnering with three-letter agencies and the rest of the government to be that um, marketing piece, so to speak, to uh, advise, uh, threat and awareness to the private sector. And I think we uh, we built a pretty good mission space there, as well as uh, driving insider threat and security practices uh, around the country and the globe.
1: You left uh, not long ago, and it was a bit of a surprise to me. I just kind of figured you'd be there for a while. You were doing, in my opinion, such excellent work, Um But you left. And I'm wondering when you left, how did you leave things? What are the key threats that the nation is facing now?
0: Well, yeah, JJ, I I had planned to leave. Uh, I had been there six and a half years and we had built uh, um, an amazing uh, center, an agency with just phenomenal, talented women and men driving uh, our mission space. And I, we had just recently hired uh, a tremendous deputy in Mike Orlando from the FBI. So I knew that there was a perfect time for me to leave at the right place where we were in a, a steadfast position to carry on uh, with the mission space without me being missed in the equation. Uh, secondarily to your question, um, the threats are greater, um, more sophisticated, and probably more dangerous than they've ever been. And I, I say that with you know, the obvious in play with the recent um issues with solar winds and now the recent um penetrations and breach with more chinese actors uh, you see this expanding and with frequency uh, throughout our private sector and i think right now we are at a i would say we're at a pinnacle in our nation where we are forced to finally uh really get to a place where a true private public partnership is going to have to be employed to at least neutralize if not defeat our adversaries and I think uh, we're in a good space for that. I think the Biden administration should take that. And I think with Ann Neuberger at the helm at Cyber, working closely with Congress, I think we are at a place right now we have to engage our private sector. who are going to provide some of the tools and capabilities to defend our nation uh, as we move forward against our adversaries.
1: Okay, so you've described the threats and you've described them as um, uh, sophisticated and saying these are threats that are greater than anything we faced before. But where are they coming from? Who are they?
0: Well, let's say, to your question, JJ, in the cyber realm, really, I mean, a cyber attack, a cyber penetration, a cyber intrusion, it only comes from three or four different entities. Number one, mostly, 80%, it's a nation state threat actor, intelligence service. Secondarily, it could be a terrorist group. It could be a ransomware from a criminal element. And that's about it. So we know where they're coming from. And so we have to identify how we're going to mitigate that threat. So we know China, Russia, Iran, North Korea are the three big dogs in this fight with Russia and China being at the top of the heap. And uh, obviously, we're still dealing with solar winds, trying to understand the complexity of that. I think you saw recently the Microsoft CEO uh, made a claim it was the largest and most uh, intense, sophisticated attack in our nation's history. Those are not small words. So I think we have to wrap our arms around what does that mean and how are we going to identify not only what the attack is, but at some point, what is the damage assessment? How is it really being manifested in the government and the private sector? And what are our aggregate losses before we could take a finite look at how we go from here?
1: We spoke with Stephen Adair, who's president of Vilexity, and he and his team were the ones that discovered that Microsoft uh, exchange hack. And he said that this um, is as serious as it gets. And he said essentially everybody from mom and pop shops to ministries of foreign affairs in, in, in other countries, major conglomerates are caught up in this. What's your perspective on this?
0: Oh, I would agree, and, and I would concur with that. And I would I would uh, amplify that with saying, you know, we are hearing um, we everyone's hearing about about this. Uh, intrusion hack um, penetration from the government, from the NSC, from the FBI, from the intelligence community, from Congress, the private sector. Putting that all that information together is going to be very difficult to identify what the actual damage is. I think we started out three months ago saying that looked like an espionage uh, effort to acquire information. Uh, we're starting to see now there's more surveillance and there's potentially down the road And we'll see what happens if it could be more than that. And I think we have to wait for the investigation to vet itself up. At the same time, Gigi, we have to understand the enormity of this. We have to be able to provide holistic information that's classified and not classified to victim companies so they can mitigate these issues today and moving forward into tomorrow and next week. And I think what the mom and pop shops, as well as Microsoft, Think about this, Microsoft was victimized. If they can be victimized, anyone can. So we have to take this as a lesson that we are never as sure as we think we are from a cyber perspective. And secondarily, we have to have holistic and sometimes shared services to protect companies from adversarial action of intelligence services from nation state threat actors.
1: You know, that is a really strong and very sobering statement if microsoft can be victimized then anyone can and that is not lost on me and certainly i'm sure on the audience as well because that means that you know we trust microsoft with things that are important like email and like other uh, activities that we engage in whether it's for personal nature or of a business nature uh, and um, we are in a situation now where we don't know, we won't know for a while how much damage has been done. I've been hearing that China, or at least uh, individuals that are connected to China are behind this hack. What's your view on that? Well,
0: my view on that is not being in the game anymore, JJ. I will leave that to the folks who are you know, investigating this. And I think, to my point before, it's going to take some time For full attribution and accountability, and I think that is the case on any type of cyber activity because a lot of nation-state threat actors spend a lot of time obfuscating their activity, or when they don't, they want to get caught. But juxtaposing the SolarWinds attack, um, I want to go back to you know a few years ago when we had the the MSS China APT10 attack, where China got smart and said, "Hey, instead of us breaching all these companies, we're going to." Step back strategically and go into managed service providers, where all that data is from multiple companies. And if we attack and penetrate a managed service provider, we'll then have access to everyone's data. Well, SolarWinds is just the next venue of that from the software capability into you know tens of thousands of businesses. So, so as we continue to mitigate these um, threats and understand consequences, JJ, we have to be able to look towards next week, next month, next year. What is the next iteration of this threat and, and holistically look at how and in what manner China or Russia can do this a year from now. And I think this is going to be a place where the U.S. government is going to have to yield to the private sector to help find uh, effective solutions.
1: Bill, Adair from volexity and I believe the, the government uh, and at least a, a couple of the top cybersecurity experts have said China's fingerprints were on this Microsoft hack. You haven't seen that.
0: Um, I had not, JJ. I'll be honest with you. I ha- I'm, again, I don't have access to the classified information anymore. Well, this, uh, is, minimum- this yeah.
1: is this but- isn't classified though. But I'm just wondering, have you heard that though? And do you you just not um, commenting on that?
0: I have. I have heard that. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that. And again, I am. Uh, I come from a career of uh, show me the facts and the okay. evidence uh, before I make any decisions. Uh, we went through months where this was a Russia. Uh, involvement uh, would it surprise me at all if China had fingerprints on it or was a partner? Not at all. Both both nation state threats uh, from both Russia and China are not only adversarial, uh, nefarious, and they're vicious. So I would put nothing past either one of those countries.
1: Speaking of those two countries, um, how would you compare them in terms of you've you've said already that Russia and China are the the top tier. Um, is is one better than the other, or are they good at various different things?
0: Yeah, I would say B. They're good at various different things. I think uh, because Russia does not have a vibrant economy uh, and they have you know very little to offer the world at large. Uh, most of their interests are military based uh, or geopolitical in terms of uh, power brokering by Vladimir Putin. A very geopolitical, military, diplomatic. Uh, as you saw with the invasions that in the last you know, five or six years, uh, they want to be able to stake their claim. Uh, they're not a threat to the U.S. economically at all, where China, uh, for juxtaposition, is a significant existential threat to us economically, uh, long-term with their theft, uh, their overt theft of inte- intellectual property and trade secrets, their technology, their investment in AI, and what that leads us uh, down the path in the next 10 years. Existentially, China, not even close uh, with any other com- comparative nature. Obviously, geopolitical, when look at the COVID aspects of this last year, uh, the race for being a global leader around the world, we're competitive with uh, as the as the current leader in almost everything in the U.S. right now. Uh, China is nipping at our tail, uh, not only from a science and technology perspective, but geopolitically, uh, telecommunications wise, and being that honest broker around the globe. And I think we have to have a whole society approach to not, not only understand that, long-term geopolitical risk, but find ways to be aggressive in, in countering that around the world. And, and I think Russia does not portray that kind of threat to us on a daily basis.
1: You're talking about some heavy duty stuff here when you talk about Russia and China and what they're into. Is the nation prepared for what's coming?
0: Wow, that's a, that's a really heavy question, JJ. and I'll do my best to answer it. Um, I think we are. I think as a nation, we're resilient. And I think we as a nation, as Americans, um, historically and today, we work at our best when there's a crisis, and we're probably in the last decade plus not been proactive and preparing for that crisis. So we've had multiple crises. I see one coming down the road but with with you know more advanced, sophisticated cyber. When you see what happened the last decade with Russia, and to some extent China, surveilling our critical infrastructure, our energy financial telecommunication systems, with Huawei and telecommunication systems, with the ability um, of both Russian intelligence and Chinese intelligence to um, provide malware on equipment in the private sector. I don't think we're prepared effectively and efficiently as a partnership between the private sector and the government as we need to be. We've made great strides in the last five years. I think the Congress has, the Senate has, uh, the administrations have, the intelligence community has. We have a long way to go to provide that, I would say, that jointure between private sector and the government where we could enable a fulsome protection that we need going forward.
1: You know, uh, Bill, Congress has been pushing for years for the U.S. government to get its cybersecurity strategy together. Um, I can remember back during the time frame when Mike Rogers and Dutch Rupersberger were the leadership of the House Intelligence Committee. That's a bipartisan effort. And they worked together to push and push very heavily and uh, routinely for a better cybersecurity strategy. And it was just a year ago that, um, and this is in 2020, that a bipartisan study came out telling Congress you know, this is after years and years and years of warnings that the nation was still at severe risk. And lo and behold, here we are now uh, and very little's changed to the naked eye or at least to the untrained eye or to the, the public. Did anything change? Because it looks as though we just got hammered again twice within a couple of months.
0: Well, great, great question, JJ. But, uh, but I'll step back a little bit and saying that um, the premise of the question, I think, Behind the scenes and what the public doesn't see are, are the the very uh, vigilant, super talented women and men of both Department of Defense, the intelligence community, uh, the non-Title 50 organizations who work tirelessly around the globe to protect us every day. So that doesn't change no matter what happens. I think to your point, though, JJ, and again, I was in those briefings from 2009 and 10, 11, 12 with uh, Chairman Rogers and, and, and Dutch Ruppersberger, who were phenomenal leaders of an oversight committee. Yep. And up till now, when I left with Senator Warner and Senator Byrne and Senator Rubio and, and Sissy, uh, all very bipartisan mindsets mm-hmm. uh, to be able to drive effective and efficient cybersecurity. And we saw the Cyber Solarium Commission and the recommendations that they put forward. That's great. What we don't have is an effective implementation strategy or plan, because with that, out of that branch of government, has to be buy-in an agreement with the executive branch. For instance, as you saw, uh, they uh, called for a cyber czar uh, that would report to Congress. Well, that hasn't been implemented yet because where would that person sit in the NSC? How would they work with Ann Neuberger with her new role and accountability? And we have multiple agencies that have cyber roles uh, and authorities. The FBI, um, the obviously NSA, DHS, CISA, uh, Commerce, Treasury. DOD, Cyber Command, everyone is in this space. So to your point, we do not have an, you know, a holistic, down-earthly type of cyber strategy. We have one for counterintelligence. We have one for counterterrorism and counterproliferation, but we do need one for cyber strategy, and we need a convening authority and ability to look forward both offensively and defensively. But I think the point you're getting at, JJ, is the authorities issue and the amount of agencies that are playing in the space that have overlapping uh, authorities and overlapping roles and responsibilities. And I think another big, uh, I think, moving forward kind of concept, well, Congress created DHS-CISA, two years ago, which was a great idea, and CISA has been making lots of strides. But I think they need to give them more authorities, and I think CISA, at some point, should be part of the intelligence community mm-hmm. that will help them grow and drive intelligence-based decision-making as they drive that, not only within the government, domestically, uh, in, into the, protecting the government networks, but also in their outreach to the private sector.
1: That's a really interesting remark there about CISA possibly needing to be a member of the intelligence community. Why, why, why aren't they there already?
0: Well, I think uh, historically, you know, CISA gets their uh, classified intelligence uh, via DHS uh, intelligence apparatus, which is part of the intelligence community. Um, But I think they have so many things and responsibilities writ large with the Department of Defense. I believe that CISA on its own needs to be part of the intelligence community to have uh, real-time, actionable intelligence provided to them on an ongoing basis where they could take... And utilize and provide to private sector entities in need, and I think that's probably something that uh, the committee members who created CISA two and a half years ago more, did not think of, or maybe it was Plan A or Plan B. And I've mentioned this to members of Congress multiple times that, and especially as we saw last year during the election threat process, um, Chris Krebs and CISA, who did a, just an amazing job uh, with state and local and protecting our election infrastructure. Um, needed to be a little bit more effective and efficient as a government providing them with that intelligence on an ongoing constant basis that was real-time and actionable
1: shifting gears here working during the Trump years what was that like
0: well um, I'd say uh, from from a leadership of my of, of NCSC and being you know one of the leaders in the intelligence community I I, I want to say that it was uneventful but that would be unfair like um, because I could tell you my Point earlier, the dedicated women and men uh, work tirelessly around the globe, regard regardless who the president is. Um, but but I do I do know that from a morale perspective, we always said morale was high. But yes, you know do do the tweets here and there have impact? Uh, they do. But I, I would say from the most part, uh, can be no more proud uh, of our, of the resilience of the men and women of the intelligence community to fight uh, every day for the protection of America. And I think that goes. No matter who's president so i think it's easy for someone to say wow it was really difficult working for president trump under his tutelage and his leadership i don't i think that would be um incorrect for the women and men of the intelligence um, community as well as the uh, women and men of the executive branch uh
1: going forward well let's be clear about this on this program and everybody that i know that listens and almost all of the folks that i know in the intelligence world or Anybody that listens to wherever you're going to get this podcast from, which is some WTOP uh, partner, knows that the men and women of the intelligence community are the consummate professionals, perhaps the world's most most professional people, and that they're going to do what they have to do regardless. But I do need to ask you, though, how, how did those tweets feel when you were in there and some of them just did not seem to help your mission how did the, how did that feel
0: yeah it doesn't feel good jj i'm going to just you know being honest but I, I do think what what really helped was that below the president and, and outside the confines of his actual tweets uh there was a very supportive apparatus within the national security council that was um on point with the intelligence community and the government in driving mission and programs forward so as much as the first I would say shock of how this was going to play out in 2017 um, manifested itself. Over time, you started to realize that the tweets were his way of driving his thoughts and ideas and, and policy, and you were able to, you know, mitigate that with understanding how that impacted your role. Now, honestly, for me, overseas, uh, early on, it was difficult. You know, uh, being, you know, uh, head of counterintelligence for NATO, we had a. a, a, a massage our relationships with the NATO intelligence services early on. But after a while, they realized that it was just rhetoric and that uh, at the end of the day, we were going to rely on each other and partner uh, to protect ourselves uh, as a NATO body uh, from an intelligence perspective. And I think you just have to be resilient and get through it and overall understand how it affects you and your, and your agency's mission.
1: There are a lot of things that I don't know. A lot of things that I'm completely in the dark on, but very few at least I think when it comes to the intelligence community. And you just said something that I don't think I was aware of being head of counterintelligence for NATO. That was you.
0: Yeah. Uh, me and my role as head of uh, national counterintelligence security center, you know uh, the chair of that counterintelligence panel uh, for NATO for, for six years. And uh, the last two years, we partnered with the Romanians in that effort uh, to be able to drive, uh, I would say substantive and, and real actions Uh, protecting NATO from insider threats, China, Russia, cyber, uh, across the spectrum, not only of the NATO headquarters in Brussels, but our NATO capital cities around our 29 member nations. And for me, that was one of my proudest moments is being able to drive um, programs and initiatives and have successful outcomes in NATO, and then be able to pre- present those at the NATO NAC every year in front of all the ambassadors from those countries uh, was an amazing, amazing opportunity. Very humbling for me as an American, uh, you know, intelligence professional, government employee for 32 years to represent America, United States, in that venue. So uh, I look back at that with great fond memories.
1: One of the things that was very clear about you and your tenure uh, at uh, as NCIX and then director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center was that even during those difficult Trump years, you were perhaps the only intelligence director consistently that did interviews. How did you manage to do that? Because many of many of your counterparts were really afraid, concerned about angering the president.
0: Wow. Um, well, I didn't think I had a choice, JJ. I, I thought that as we built uh, NCSC into the boutique agency that it is with outreach, that the number one thing I could do was be out there do interviews and continue to drive threat awareness uh, and consequence to not only the government um, but private sector, but but also educate the American populace on what's going on and how these threats manifest their lives every day, whether it be from a social media account to you know uh to huawei and and to me i never re- even really thought about the potential consequences uh from the president of the administration and i can tell you i didn't feel that way either with um president obama and working with him and general clapper i believe that was our role and i think we had great partnerships with nsa cia fbi uh dod as well as both branches um of the legislature in Congress and the NSC to provide, you know, not only a partner agreements, but understanding their understanding what our roles and strategy was in going forward and being public. And I think that partnership and trust drove a lot of our uh, willingness to do it. And just lack of caring, as long as we were uh, judicious and we weren't um, disclosing classified information, we were doing, I think, what the nation needed to have, which was a voice from the intelligence community to those outside the intelligence community.
1: Well, this has been a great uh, opportunity to talk with you um, on the tail end of your tenure uh, as um, uh, the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And then I look back to being one of the first people you spoke to when you assumed the role. So it's good to bookend that. And as we finish this, I'd like, if you would, just to give us a sense of the most important thing facing the nation right now when it comes to um, your former agency and the threats that face the nation?
0: Wow. That's a loaded question, JJ. And before I answer, I want to say thank you um, personally for all your um, partnership with NCSC and the NCX before that, and me personally for being a supporter and being a, a partner in enhancing our ability to message the American people over the last seven years is greatly appreciated. So thank you. And, and WTOP.
1: You're welcome. Very welcome.
0: As, as far as the uh, threat, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go with what my heart tells me um, beyond my mind. Uh, I truly believe that our greatest threat we face is manifested through what we've seen the last decade, our, our adversaries, mostly Russia, China, and a little bit Iran, inside our critical infrastructure, and the ability for any given moment, uh, our adversary to shut off our power grids, our electrical grids gas, natural oil, um, or the ability to have cyber, um, malfeasance in those areas to me is our greatest threat long-term and short-term. And I think we're at a space now where we have a cyber outage. We have a power outage. We're automatically thinking, was this a nation state threat? Because we've seen them surveil and put malware in, in equipment for the last decade. So to me, as much as economic threat is there, it's going to be there with, uh, China, I think our critical infrastructure and our ability to protect it is, in my mind, our biggest threat to our nation writ large. Secondarily, JJ, I would say it's the the new uh, catchphrase, malign foreign influence. The ability for Americans to understand what that is, what it looks like, feels like, how it manifests itself in their town, whether you're in Kansas or California or Texas, and how nation-state threat actors use malign foreign influence to... Uh, influence our everyday lives as a democratic society, one of the best, obviously, governments ever made, and our democracy provides us that freedom. So I think malign foreign influence will be the catchphrase now in the next three years until we wrap our arms around it.
1: Well, Mr. Revenina, we thank you for your service and thank you for the kind words and the opportunity to, again, engage with you today, and we wish you the best moving forward. Uh, any big plans?
0: Um, Well, yeah, I have a lot of plans. I I just uh, incorporated uh, my new business, which I'm now the founder and and CEO of the Evanina Group, which we will continue to drive uh, threat awareness and consequences to uh, C-suite members and board of directors to help uh, America and the private sector uh, drive effective and efficient uh, protections against nation-state threat actors and build more Uh, coalitions with the government to be holistically pure, you know, defenses. At the same time, provide those uh, corporate executives with some geopolitical uh, risk assessments as they continue to uh, engage in global um, investment.
1: Again, Bill, thank you very much.
0: JJ, have a great day. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Bill Evanina, classy guy. And I get the feeling you'll be hearing from him again in some capacity don't know which it is which it will be but i do think you will in the meantime coming up on our next episode so much attention is paid to the cyber threat that security professionals tend to overlook other more traditional threats such as you know
0: insider human intelligence threats uh, but but also the threat posed by bugs
1: scott stewart vice president at torchstone global He's not talking about creepy crawlers. He's talking about those electronic surveillance devices. Electronics
0: have really become smaller, cheaper, and more plentiful. And of course, that applies in the surveillance realm as well.
1: And another reason why these devices are so dangerous now, not only are they smaller and cheaper, they're also...
0: Even more capable than the devices that, you know, say the KGB or the CIA used during the Cold War.
1: Dangerous times we live in coming up on the next episode of Target USA in the meantime if you have any questions or comments about the program send me an email I'm at jgreen at WTOP.com that's the letter J the color green one word at whiskey tango oscarpapa.com jgreen at WTOP.com also we invite you to follow us on Twitter we're at TUSA podcast that's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha podcast and if you want more information about national security, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. You can sign up at WTOP.com alerts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. Hey, this is Adam Parola. Let me tell you about my podcast. We do it uh, every single day, so you can subscribe, and there'll always be a fresh one waiting for you. It's about two hours of uh, topics, topical topics, and news, and guests, and uh, comedians, and of course, my own vitriolic take on uh, just about everything that's going on in the world, plus Um, We get a lot of really interesting, uh, notable people who come in. We'll get politicians. We'll get taste tastemakers. We'll get stand-ups. We'll get uh, authors. We'll get uh, pundits. We'll get, what did I say? Well, I think about covers at all celebrities as well. And uh, we'll do some really interesting interviews with them. You can get The Adam Carolla Show wherever you download your podcast.